2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Tonight we're going to talk about the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. And I'm going to tell you who the man of lawlessness is. No, I'm just joking. I ain't going to tell you who the man of lawlessness is. Man, people have been debating this for, for hundreds of years. I wish I could tell you who the man of lawlessness is or was or will be, depending on your interpretation of it. But it's a tough passage. This is a really tough passage to to understand and to figure out. And so if you if you read it and listen to it and have read it before maybe and you're not really sure what to make of it, well, you are not alone. It's it's difficult. And so uh, I'll go ahead and tell you, we're, we're not going to come to a, at least I won't come to or present a, a firm uh, solution to the question or answer to the question of who is the man of lawlessness. We will talk about uh, kind of what's going on here in some of the popular interpretations throughout the years, and uh, I'll leave you to ponder that and pray about it and decide for yourself uh, what you think of these passages. But they're tough passages. But regardless of whether we come to a firm understanding or conclusion about these, praise the Lord, we don't have to. Our salvation does not depend on us knowing who the man of lawlessness is. And so we want to understand God's Word and know it as best we can, certainly. But there are just some things in there that are hard for us to know what they are. Now, you will certainly find some people that will tell you quite assuredly that they know who the man of lawlessness is. Uh, and, uh, well, maybe they do or maybe they don't. But I'm, I'll say on myself, I, it, is, it is inconclusive to me at this point in time. But maybe the Lord will reveal it to me or to you guys at some point, should he will. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll pick up with verse 1, but we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for your uh, good word, and I pray as we look at this text tonight, it's kind of tough, dear Lord, to make heads or tails of some of these things that just really don't make sense to us. And God, maybe there are parts of it that we understand and parts of it that we still don't quite understand, but... Just help us to seek you and trust you in all that, we, all that we read and hear tonight and discuss. And I pray, God, even if we don't understand it, God, we still trust in Jesus. We know you're good. We know your word is good. So I pray that you bless the reading of your word tonight. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Now, we looked at those two verses last week, and we didn't so much talk about the context as we did the phrase, the day of the Lord, because we see that phrase in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And so we talked about how that, how that phrase is sometimes used. Now, in the Old Testament, it's often used when God is bringing judgment on a nation. Sometimes Israel, sometimes Judah, sometimes Babylon, sometimes some of these other nations. We see this language, uh, day of the Lord. We see this, this language about clouds and the sun being darkened. And these same ideas we see typically associated with the day of the Lord. And we can say uh, with, with, I think, pretty good certainty that in the Old Testament that that is a, a, a time that God brings judgment on a people for whatever reason. However, when we get into First and Second Thessalonians, we continue to see this day of the Lord mentioned. But when we see this mentioned, we see this other theme in First and Second Thessalonians, and that is 
the, the coming of the Lord, uh, the return of Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly different views even among Christians as to what that looks like. What does it mean here when it speaks of the coming of Jesus? Is this a, is this a physical return of Jesus coming back one day? Is this language that is to be taken spiritually? Well, there are some Christians that would say that this is more of a spiritual uh, type of thing. Uh, there are others who would say that this is more of a physical type of thing. Now, in my reading through First and Second Thessalonians, I, I still believe that this is a physical event that's going to occur. The people of Thessalonica thought that they had missed the day of the Lord. And Paul is encouraging them. We saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, some were worried about the dead. And Paul said, hey, don't worry about the dead. They're going to be raised up and we will all be gathered with Jesus. Now, this to me seems like language of something that has not yet occurred. We have not been gathered to Jesus in the way that, that Paul has described here in 2 Thessalonians. Now, obviously, some of the people in Thessalonica had thought that they had missed the day of the Lord. And that was part of the problem. And that's what he says concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and are being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter, as if from us alleging the day of the Lord has come. So if some tell you the day of the Lord has come, then don't worry. You have not missed the day of the Lord. Now, there is a view that is held among even some good, solid Christian people that by all accounts appear to be Christian people, uh, and that view, and we've talked about this and used this big word in the past, is called full preterism. And their interpretation of texts like these would say this event was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. That was the day of the Lord that was referenced here. Now, some may look at that who oppose that view and say, well, hi, it says right here the day of the Lord hadn't come. But Hold up. We can't really use that argument because this passage was written before 70 A.D. It was written before the day that the full preterist would say the day of the Lord was. Now, in this instance, before 70 A.D., if in fact that was the day of the Lord that Paul referenced, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Maybe you hold that view, maybe you don't. It doesn't really matter. Uh, there, like I say, there are good Christian men and women that hold a variety of different views on the interpretations of this passage. Uh, but at the time that Paul was writing this letter, there had been no such event that had occurred. Whether it was 70 AD, whether it's something that's still to come in our lifetime, Paul says that this day of the Lord, or some of your translations may say day of Christ. Now some would say there's, a signif there's, a, there's some significance to that, that the day of Christ and the day of the Lord is different. I'm not so sure that it is. Christ is Lord. And so uh, I think day of the Lord, day of Christ, Christ are, are interchangeable there. I don't believe that there's any difference. However, some would, would say that there is significant difference there. So Paul, in the context, is telling them the day of the Lord, whatever it looked like, whenever it has occurred or will occur, it had not happened yet. And so he gives them some more information concerning this day of the Lord in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... Now, the day is not going to come, the day of the Lord, unless something occurs. And he's about to tell them what that something is. And here's what he says. Unless the apostasy or the falling away or the rebellion, your translations may say any of those words or maybe others, uh, unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god of ob or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary 
publicizing that he himself is God. Okay, so there's going to be an apostasy that comes. Uh, that word means falling away, people falling away, not, not following the Lord. Perhaps Christians falling away. Perhaps people who heard the gospel just didn't take it. They're falling away. Uh, their people are not, not seeking the Lord. They're not following the Lord. So Paul says, look, here's how you can know the day of the Lord has not come. That's what he tells his audience because there hasn't been this great falling away yet that is going to come, and there's something else that's going to happen too. And the man of lawlessness is revealed or the man of sin is revealed. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Who is the man of lawlessness? Well, we get a description of this man of lawlessness. He opposes himself and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. Okay, so who could this man of lawlessness be? Well, there's been a lot, of, a lot of guesses as to who the man of lawlessness could be. Now, in the context, Paul is talking to his audience here. Now, we can certainly make the argument as we continue to read this passage that Paul is speaking of somebody that his audience knows about, and we'll see that in some of this language that we are about to see. Now, oftentimes, you will hear, hear a view that connects some passage that goes like this. The man of lawlessness is the Antichrist, who is the same person you see in Revelation 13, who is the same person you see in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9. All of these people are all one person, and that one person is the Antichrist. Now, that's the nice packaged-up view that I would venture to say all of you have probably heard. As a matter of fact, in the Southern Baptist Church, it is likely that is the only view that you will ever hear. You, won't, you typically won't, are not going to get somebody that's going to say, hey, some other views that Christians have. For 30 years, I never knew that any Christian in the history of the world ever interpreted any of those passages differently. And then, lo and behold, I started reading God's Word, and I started reading about other Christian scholars and preachers and teachers, and they presented Scripture in a different way with different interpretations, and I said, well, huh, well, that kind of makes sense, too. And so when we look at this passage, our natural inclination, we may say that is the Antichrist. And part of that comes from we tend to, we tend to read into passages what we have already heard. Now, that's natural. There's, I'm not saying that we're evil people for doing that. If we've been taught something our whole life and we think this is the way it is, when we see any passage that kind of talks along those lines, we plug it into our viewpoint that we already have. But sometimes... With passages like these, when we begin to look at them in the context, and we begin to look at those other passages I just referenced in the context, it may not be so clear that those passages connect together and are speaking of the same person. Now, it may be. Now, I think it's fair to say, when we speak of Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think it's fair to say that it's not crazy for people to make some connections with these verses, that maybe they are speaking about the same person. However, sometimes the conclusions that we arrive at, we kind of are filling in some gaps and twisting some scriptures in a way that may not be what the passage means. Now, when we speak of the Antichrist, who this man of lawlessness may be, he may be a, a Antichrist, the Antichrist that is to come at a future date, 
when we speak of that, we have to realize that the word Antichrist only occurs in First and Second John and not in the way that maybe we have heard or been taught with, with, with our viewpoint that maybe we have learned. Now, we, we may think that the Antichrist, word Antichrist is all throughout the book of Revelation. We may think it's all in there, but, but it is not. And when we look at First John and Second John, and I believe there's only four, four passages in the whole Bible that say Antichrist, we see Antichrist spoken of in a plural sense. Now, we won't go over those passages tonight. You can look them up and read them all for yourself. Now, you may could say that, well, there seems to be maybe one or two that speaks in a, in a singular sense, but it seems as though when it speaks of Antichrist there, it's speaking plurally. And who is Antichrist? Uh, uh, John says that the Antichrist is already here, is what he says when he's speaking to John. Well, I said we wasn't going to look at those verses. We will, we will look at, at at least one of those verses. Uh, if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Quite simply, when we read through John's letters here in 1 and 2 John and see Antichrist, he says that there are many Antichrists, not an Antichrist. Now, typically, that's what we think of, that there will be or some think of, not all Christians, but some Christians would think there will be a future-time person who will be an antichrist. Uh, however, that's, that's not really clear in First and Second John in the only instances where the word is mentioned. Uh, in First John chapter 4, verse 2, it says, This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit who confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit who does not confess Jesus uh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You have heard that he is coming, and he is already in the world now. Now, in that instance, you could argue that maybe that's a, that's a singular use, but I think in all the rest of the instances, it's, it, it has a, a plural use as well. But if, if we are trying to say, is there a future Antichrist, and we're trying to base that on the words of First John and Second John, we're is the only place it occurs. But John says that the Antichrist is in the world now. And so it's important for us to, to look at these passages in, in the context to try to see, are these the same people? Is the man of lawlessness the Antichrist? An Antichrist that will come at a future date? Well, it's certainly possible that that is the case. And there are many Christians who believe that and teach that, and they may be right. However, that might not be correct. This man of lawlessness may not be the Antichrist. It may be somebody that was alive and well at the time that Paul wrote this to the people. Now, another important thing for us to recognize in verse 4 is he exalts himself above God as if he's better than God, okay? Right? That's part of that teaching that we hear when we think about Daniel 9 and this passage. And Revelation, ah, that's, the, that's somebody that's going to come. In an end day, there's going to be somebody who's going to rise up and they're going to say that they are God and more powerful than God. And what does it say? That this one will sit in God's sanctuary, or perhaps your translation says, in God's temple. Now, because of this type of language, this is one reason why many Christians would say there has to be a third temple that has to be built, or else how will the Antichrist sit in that temple? Well, we look at verses like these, but this verse does not say the Antichrist will sit in a future third temple. Now, that may be what it's saying. It may be. I won't say that it's not, 
But it's not abundantly clear there that this man is the Antichrist in First and Second John. And, we, and coincidentally, we talked a lot Sunday morning about what is the sanctuary and temple of God in the New Testament. In Paul's writings in the New Testament, when he refers to the sanctuary or temple of God, he's referring to the people of God. Now, it is certainly possible that in this particular passage, Paul is looking forward to a future temple that's going to be rebuilt, and this particular man of lawlessness will be in that temple. It's also possible, and some Christians would hold the viewpoint, that it's speaking of God's sanctuary or God's temple here as God's people are that, that somehow that there's going to be some sin or something that's going to take place that's going to cause a falling away. That is, the devil will kind of set up camp in people, in the sanctuary, in the temple, which is people. Now, we can make that argument because we see that language used of the people of God in the New Testament. It's also possible that this is speaking of someone who did act similar to this in 70 A.D. Now, this was written before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and guess what? There were some pretty evil people. Uh, way back before Jesus came, there was a similar thing that Daniel spoke of that was going to occur. And there was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he would fit this kind of language. Now, I don't believe this is speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes because that had already come, but it's certainly possible it could be speaking of someone uh, in the time uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed. And so it could be that this passage is speaking of something that will soon occur, in the context of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. Uh, it could be that this is something that's going to occur in the future. But that's what makes this verse really difficult. It's hard for us to know who this man of lawlessness is. Has he already come in some way and done something in the past, or is he coming in the future? Well, that I don't know the answer to. But those are a couple of, of the uh, of the main views. There, there are certainly more ways that those splinter off. Uh, verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this, and you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. Now, whatever Paul is talking about here, he has already talked to the people of Thessalonica about. He doesn't tell it, he doesn't reiterate here. But whoever or whatever this is he's speaking of, he says, Don't you remember? I've already told you about this. Now that seems to be a clue that. This man of lawlessness, this, this event that seems to be about to occur is something that was going to happen to the people of Thessalonica. They were already aware of some of these things. He's already told them about this event or this person. And he already uh, assumes, either by telling them or just that they know, uh, because he says, and you know what currently restrains him. So the day of the Lord cannot come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, but there's something that is restraining the man of lawlessness. Now, in verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining him will do so until he is out of the way. Now, who is the one restraining the man of lawlessness? Well, this is a good question. Now, depending on your translation, your translators may have already interpreted this for you in the way that they think it should be. For instance, uh, for the mystery of lawless is already at work, but the one uh, now restraining, or he who now restrains, your translation may say something like that. So there is one, uh, a he, a one, who is restraining the man of lawlessness. 
However, if you have a New King James translation, and maybe others do it too, you will see that the word he there is capitalized. Now, why do they capitalize the word he there? Because those who translated the New King James Version have interpreted and put that interpretation in the text that he is the Holy Spirit. Now, the he there may be the Holy Spirit, or it may not be the Holy Spirit. It may be a person. Now, there's a couple of ways that, that this, is, this idea is interpreted. One, that the Holy Spirit is restraining the man of lawlessness. Uh, another view is that the church is the one who is restraining the man of lawlessness. And that view is fleshed out in this way. In the view that there is a future Antichrist, and this man of lawlessness is that future Antichrist, the view goes something like this. There will one day be a tribulation, and all of God's people will be taken up. At that point, the church will be removed, the Holy Spirit will be removed, and that is what's keeping the Antichrist from coming and doing all the evil things that he's going to do. Now, that's a nice, neatly packaged thing, and that sounds really good when I say it like that. But I don't know that we really see that in the text as clearly as sometimes it's presented. But that's the, but that's the view that maybe we have heard the most, and, and that's the way that it's going to occur. And that God has to take all the Christians out, that God would never allow his Christians to suffer in any great way. And so once he takes the Christians out, the Holy Spirit will be gone, and then the Antichrist will run wild for seven years and wreak all kind of havoc. Now this is all built uh, around the fact that, that, that we assume that this man of lawlessness is the Antichrist, and perhaps he is. Just a side note, as we speak about uh, the idea of revelation, and, or, or excuse me, tribulation, and, and seven years, and when will the church be raptured, and even, even among those who believe in a rapture and a seven-year tribulation, even then there's still some disagreement. But, but I would say this. Some say, well, God would have to take all the church up before things really got bad, if it should come to that, uh, because God wouldn't allow people to suffer in such a way. But I don't know that that's really good logical thinking as we read the Scripture and as we look into the world today. Because throughout history, we have seen God's people suffer in great ways, and he has not taken them up. So if that's our, if that's our mindset, and for some people maybe it is, they say, I have to believe in that because I can't believe that God would allow his people to suffer. Well, you haven't looked around the world enough if you don't believe that. Look up when you get home Richard Wormbrand. And you read about his story, and you, you check him out. He was a pastor from Romania who the Russians came in, communist Russia, and they arrested him for being a pastor. And for 14 years, he was tortured in some of the greatest ways you can possibly imagine. And not just Richard Wormbrandt, but thousands of people. And that's just one instance. And guess what? I think sometimes we kind of live in a bubble because we live in the U.S. We don't realize that those things have gone on for centuries the Catholic Church did horrible things to people throughout the years. I mean, it doesn't take much, much study to see that God's people have suffered in unbelievable ways. And Richard Wormbrand is just one example. And guess what? That is still happening today. That is still happening today. It's a phenomenal story. You need to go read about it. Every day he would pray, and every day he would get beat. He would get beat and beat and beat because he wasn't allowed to pray. And the next day he would pray, and they would beat him and beat, beat the bottom of his feet. He couldn't even walk. Even once he got out of prison, he never walked normal again because of the beatings. That's just one example. It's unbelievable. But through all of this, he continued to, to, to praise the Lord. One, the guard that kept coming by and checking on him and seeing him praying and taking him out to beat him every day, one, one day the, the guard came in and said, why are you still praying? 
You have lost your wife. Your child is an orphan. You have nothing left to pray for. What are you praying for? And Richard Wormbrandt said, I'm praying for you. Wow. And so that's a side note. That ain't got nothing to do with this. But the point being is sometimes we come up with these views and we think this is the way it's got to be. But, but Jesus says, look, we'll have to suffer. And so we need to be ready for that. I think some Christians say, well, God will take me up out of this world before there's ever any serious suffering. Well, maybe he will. Praise the Lord if he does. That'll be fantastic. But that's not what Jesus calls us to, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says we'll have to suffer. Now, man, I hope we don't have to go through that. But if we do, I hope that we're able to do it. I don't know if we can. I don't know if I can. I won't speak for you. I mean, I like to think I can, but man, that's tough stuff. And so, you know, all of these things that we come up with and these things that we tie together, you know, we try to make all these pieces fit, but, but it's hard to know on this passage. I say all that to say it's, it's hard to know who this man of lawlessness is or how all of these things will occur. All right, so he says, you, you know these things. Whatever's happening, obviously the Thessalonians know them. Uh, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but now the one who restrains him will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Okay, so at some point this man of lawlessness is revealed, and at some point when Jesus comes he will be destroyed. Now do these things happen at the same time? Possibly so. It may be that... At the time Jesus comes, at that point, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Perhaps the man of lawlessness is revealed, and whenever Jesus comes, ever how long in the future that may be, uh, perhaps that's when it happens. Or if it happens at the same time of, of a physical return of Jesus, then we could certainly argue that this man of lawlessness has not come yet. However, we could also argue from the context that perhaps this did occur in 70 A.D. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kind of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. Now, we've, we've looked at some of the, some of the really briefly, uh, obviously this topic can go so deep, but, but we've looked at some of, the, some of the main interpretations as to who this man of lawlessness could be, and this kind of changes throughout, throughout the, the, the centuries. These views kind of change. Uh, when we look at the early church fathers, they, they, don't, they didn't hold this view that is popular today about this seven-year tribulation and this future Antichrist. That wasn't part of the view of the early church. Uh, but, but that is a popular view today. In the last couple of hundred years, that's when this view really became popular and these teachings really began to take hold. Uh, but between the early church fathers and, and the view that is held popularly today, there, there have been other views and variations of those views. Uh, for instance, uh, some, of the, some of the early church folks uh, thought that this passage was speaking about the Catholic Church, the papacy. Now, that was a really popular view. And you can go back and you can look at some of the arguments uh, that some of the early church fathers had to see this as the papacy. And there's some strong arguments there. Uh, perhaps that's the correct view. It, it, it was a widely held view for a long time uh, that the man of lawlessness was the pope, was the papacy. And you can certainly look at some of the popes that have, that have ruled or reigned or whatever you say a pope does throughout the years. And they've pretty much said, I am God. I am Jesus. I am above all. That's pretty bold. But there have been some popes that have come right out and said that. 
the Catholic Church in one of their catechisms says the Pope is above all. He is God on earth. He, he, he is everything. That's pretty strong language. Now, now, that would fit some of this language that we see about the man of lawlessness here. And that view was held for a long time. But here's the thing. is that every generation reads the same passage that you or I are reading. And here's the natural thing that we do. We all want to make it be happening in our time. Whether it was 500 years ago, whether it's now, whether it's 500 years from now that people are reading this passage, we all try to make it fit in our time. We try to figure out who these people are, who this person is, what this event is. Has it something that's already happened? Is it something that's it's happening right now? We're living in this time right now. That's, that's, it's not just us. It's not just the last 40, 50 years. It's generations that have come before us. That if, that if, in some ways, we, we try to figure out, is this happening in our time right now? When it comes to the man of lawlessness possibly being the Antichrist, well, maybe he is or maybe he isn't. But then when we hold that view, then we say the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. And what's the number of the Antichrist? It's 666. But even in that context, uh, John seems to be speaking of one that the people he is writing to would know. That seems like a context of someone in that day, similar to the language we see here. And then that opens up another can of worms. Okay, if you're wise, you're going to know. You'll be able to figure out by the number 666. It's the number that, that, that attaches to a name. And you better believe that there have been plenty of people throughout the years who have tried to figure out whose name goes with 666. It's people that come up with all kind of crazy ideas. It doesn't matter. Presidents, it, all kind of crazy people. Uh, Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan. Ronald, Ronald Wilson Reagan is his name. All three of his names have six letters. Uh-oh, some people thought he was the mark of the beast. Six, six, six. I remember when I was in high school, George Bush. I remember hearing somebody say he is the Antichrist. Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Donald Trump got elected in 2016. He's the Antichrist. Bill Gates is the Antichrist. And here's the thing. All these, all these people find these names, and they say, if you take this and you, and you convert it to another language and you take these letters out because they wouldn't have originally been there, and you use this number, you can come up with 666. You could probably make everybody's name in here 666 if you wanted to bad enough. It's unbelievable. Bill Gates. Somebody said if you take Bill Gates and you use the coding language uh, ASC2 uh, and, and convert his name to digital letters and then point uh, those digital letters to the numbers that they're assigned to, guess what Bill Gates' name comes out to be? 666. Henry Kissinger. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And there's this fascination. There's this fascination. Oh, are we in the end times? Oh, who's, who's, the, who's the Antichrist? Oh, there's, a, there's five red heifers that's getting shipped to Israel right now. Oh, they're going to rebuild the temple. That this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness is going to... And we get carried away and we research and we dig into Daniel 7 and we dig into Daniel 9. And who are these beasts? And who is this man of lawlessness? And who is this Antichrist? And who is Revelation? Oh, we got to figure it out. And people will spend months of their lives trying to figure out something that they'll never know. That's why I don't preach on this very much. You may say, why don't you ever preach on the end times? Because frankly, I don't think that that's what's most important for Christians. That's not, it doesn't matter to us. I don't need to know who the Antichrist is because I know who Jesus Christ is. So it doesn't matter to me who the Antichrist is. If it was somebody that come in 70 AD, then so be it. If he comes tomorrow, then so be it. If he comes a thousand years from now, I don't care. It's not going to make any difference to me. 
If God raptures me up today and there's a seven-year tribulation, praise the Lord. If there ain't no tribulation and hard times just come because that's what happens to the Christian, then let us be ready. We can waste so much time on a bunch of stuff, and I hate to say it don't matter because it's God's Word. I mean, it does matter, but it really doesn't matter. Because these are things that people have argued and debated for 2,000 years. And nobody's come to any conclusion. And we're not going to come to any conclusion tonight. And it's okay. We don't have to. Now, I'll tell you some of these different, different interpretations so you can know them, be familiar with them, study them. Read God's Word. Read some of these passages I've told you about. Maybe you say, yep, I think Daniel 7, 9, Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, I think they're all talking about the same person. Well, if you do, if that's what you think the text says, then so be it. If you don't see the connection there, then so be it. All that matters is, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because this is not going to matter on the day when we stand before the Lord. When the day of the Lord comes... This ain't going to be the question that God asks you. The question is not going to be, all right, can you tell me who the man of lawlessness was? God, I didn't figure it out. See ya. That's not the question that matters. All that's going to matter when we stand before God is, do you know Jesus Christ? Does Jesus Christ know you? Does Jesus Christ dwell in you? God, I come to you. I am a wretched sinner, but have mercy on me through the blood of Jesus Christ. God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what's going to matter. So let's study these things, but let's not get, let's not get carried away with these things. Because we don't, we don't know the answers to all of these questions. And that's okay. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for this passage. Even though it's tough, we talk about some of this stuff and some of these big words and things that Christians have believed throughout the years. And God, even if in this room we differ on what all this stuff means, it's okay. God, a tree is judged by its fruit. The fruit you call us to produce is fruit that, that loves you and puts you first and loves our neighbor as ourself, dear Lord. If we're producing that kind of fruit, if we're doing good by you and being obedient to your command, God, that's what you call us to, and that's what matters. And so, God, even if we differ on our interpretations and what we think these things mean, we'll differ and we'll go about our way and we'll continue to work together for your kingdom. God, because your kingdom is not about a perfect understanding of eschatology. Your kingdom is about letting people know about Jesus Christ so that they may be forgiven. I pray that we don't worry so much tonight about who the Antichrist is, but we focused on your Son, Jesus Christ, and know that he is our Savior if we put our faith in him. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.